Hello again listeners and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Event, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we will discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this person is someone I am pretty grateful to actually for helping me in my own mental health journey. So about a year or so into running Vent, I was asked by this special guest to speak at the launch event of her and her friend Lauren Bamford's mental health organisation. I still had huge mental scarring from being bullied in drama school and I'd pretty much lost my confidence in public speaking, something which was pretty second nature to me up until that point. I'd even go as far as saying I probably had some sort of PTSD around it. I was incredibly nervous before, uh, before I got on stage, but you know, she and Lauren were so kind, supportive and helpful that I managed to get through it pretty well. And since then, I've not really looked back when it comes to public speaking in my professional life or with Vent. So I'm delighted to be welcoming on Charlotte Brockman to the Just Checking In pod. Charlotte is co-founder of a mental health organization called Mad Millennials. Now, Mad Millennials is a non-profit organization which aims to support the millennial generation with their mental health through awareness, connection, events, and peer-to-peer support. Charlotte is also an aspiring singer-songwriter and music artist, so we'll be having a bit of a music chat at some point later on in the pod. Having recently turned professional, she's put out a couple of debut tracks, as well as um, having done a number of live shows across London venues, including 93 Feet East and the O2 Academy Islington, which is um, not a small achievement by any stretch of the imagination. Charlotte, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. I hope you and your family are safe and well during the lockdown. How are you and how are you managing your mental health at the moment? Thank you. That was such a lovely introduction. Really kind. Um, I am. I'm good. I'm def. I'm. I surprised myself actually. I think as things were developing and we were hearing a lot more about um, the kind of lockdown structure and how things were developing all over the world. I, I expected to, um, to, you know, really flare up in um, my mental health and how it, that has impacted me over the. Um, course of my life but actually I've been okay to be honest like obviously having up and down days as um anybody Mm. is but I'm yeah I'm good and and my family are well so I feel like that's the the main thing at the moment really I can't be too ungrateful so excellent um now we've got that out of the way shall we get started yes sounds good The first topic I wanted to chat with you um, about, Shah, is Mad Millennials. Now, for the listeners who don't know anything about it, just tell them what it is, first of all, how it started, how did you and Lauren meet, uh, and what inspired you both to give it a go? Yes, so Mad Millennials is a non-profit organisation um, that my friend Lauren and I set up about sort of a year and a half ago now. Um, the premise behind it and how we kind of set it up was that, you know, as I'll probably um, touch on later, I've struggled with my mental health in the past. Uh, Lauren has as well. And Lauren, particularly at the moment in time where we uh, started Mad Millennials, was struggling herself. And I said, right, let's go to some events, um, which were predominantly in London. And we kind of just wanted to, you know, gather as much um, kind of experience, but also just have that kind of peer-to-peer support kind of 
group settings that we were kind of seeing events pop up in London. So we went along um, and there was this one particular one we went to and it was this O2 um, Academy. Uh, they were basically putting on like a, a scheme to support people sort of ages 16 to 25. And they were mm-hmm. like doing small funding grants and they were like putting on different speakers and stuff. And we're like, this is such a good event. We had such a good time. But the kind of thing was, when you were 25 that was it you couldn't come back again and we just discovered Mm. it at that point and I was really nearly 25 um and we just kind of felt like well does that mean we're supposed to be an adult now does that mean everything's supposed to be sorted and I'm supposed to know what I'm doing with my life and in terms of mental health like you know does that mean we're not supposed to be struggling all these questions and we kind of came away from it having such a good positive day having met so many people um we kind of felt like there was this gap in in kind of the community level services and as much as like connecting with other people that you don't know and are are outside your um social group but then also from a um medical kind of standpoint as well like lauren she is um is training to be a clinical psychologist so at this point she was like well there isn't really this in uh, mental health structure anyway there's no group for people that are sort of in their mid-20s and mid-30s to kind of touch touch into um mental health support it's very much your child or you're an adult so we did feel mm. like there was a kind of a gap there in terms of our the age um but then also just like in terms of like seeking mental health support from the nhs obviously we know it's it's very overstretched and, and people can be on waiting lists for a number of months and at that point people can be getting progressively um progressively worse mm. and there's a lot of people who would benefit from having a support group that may not necessarily need therapy, but they also don't, they they need something, if that makes sense. So there were lots of things flying around in our heads and we came away from that sort of pivotal event, um, which was why we kind of thought, right, let's set this up. You know, what are we? We're millennials. Let's kind of use the word mad, bit tongue in cheek. Um, I think all millennials get that. I think there's been a few people that have queried our name and when we've asked how old they, well, you know how old they are, then they're, they're not millennials and they perhaps think that, um, they're taking it a bit more literally, whereas for us it is is more tongue in cheek and sort of owning owning the kind of um, label that we kind of giving ourselves. Um, and in terms of like what inspired inspired us, I mean, again, like I will talk about it a bit more, but it is very it very much came from a personal um, standpoint and the experiences that we've gone through as individuals, and then obviously from Lauren's perspective, um, more of a sort of professional view of how this could benefit people so yeah an amalgamation of both really and I think it was it was person personally dread um but yeah that's the kind of that's how it kind of came about really Mm. talk to me about that launch event now and how that came about Mm. and sort of what you wanted to achieve with it you know was this was this yours and Lauren's first foray into event management was there a lot of stress involved in putting it together and what were some of the realities that perhaps me as a speaker didn't really see uh, yeah, definitely a lot of stress. Um, I, I obviously we both did. Uh, in fact, I didn't actually say that, but yeah, we met at uh, Liverpool University doing psychology. So neither of us came from an event background. I've always loved sort of hosting and and putting on like birthday parties and stuff like that. So I know that's a skill in me and something that I kind of really enjoyed like dabbling in. But mm. it definitely was the first time we've ever put on an event. Um, and there was a lot of kind of logistics with it, which at some points I was worried, you know, would take away from the 
mental health side of things and why we wanted to do it. But then I also thought this is putting on this launch event, which we did in London. Um, and we, we basically just wanted it to be right. This is what we're about. But we also want to be led by other people, like the people that are interacting with us are just mm. as important as what we're coming to say. So it was really the only feasible thing that we could do to really kickstart mad millennials and what we kind of wanted to be about um and we were obviously posting things on social media but we thought right we need a, a in-person meetup and we'll just see who comes and we really didn't expect it to be um you know as many people that came or even as many like engaged people like everybody every, every single person that came like had something to say and even if they didn't like you could just tell that you know they it took a lot for them to be there and you know it, yeah i was really happy with how that went around and in terms of you as a speaker and what you perhaps didn't see then yeah definitely all the organization that went in behind that um and just so many things that we we didn't think would kind of be an issue on the day and like timings and stuff like that but you know at the end of the day you get better at these things so Mm. I always say you know first all events management is always it'll be all right on the night despite what you think um, when you were when you were first starting out, Shah, what what were some of the challenges you encountered when it came to Mad Millennials? Was it you know whether it be outreach, whether it be sort of making new connections with uh, the people that you wanted to make connections with? Um, you know, what can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so I think we had a very strong sort of idea about what we wanted and what we wanted to achieve, but like anything, it's kind of how we're actually going to logistically make that happen. And I think funding, a lot of things come come down to funding, really. And we had a very small pot of funding at the beginning, which basically paid for our launch event. And then after that, we were like, well, all the things we want to do, we do need you know, a degree of, of finances to be able to do them. Because even hiring space and like even, you know, catering for events and stuff like it all costs money. So I think we were really kind of worried about that. And I'd say that was the biggest challenge. And obviously when we did secure our national lottery funding, it took, you know, the burden of that off our shoulders, but then, you know, it moves on to something else. And it's an, it's an ongoing challenge, really the funding. Um, But we, we were just met with like such positivity and I was surprised how many people reached out to us, like individually as well. Like people hadn't spoken to in ages that had then seen us talking about um, this and mental health and then sort of reached out and said, you know, I didn't know that um, you'd struggled or I'm going through this and that. And that really kind of validated why we were doing it and the importance. So the challenges were kind of the the boring things, really, but like the money and and time and stuff but yeah mm. yeah I mean I guess with every mental health organization budget is the is the, is the elephant yeah. in the room for for most of us um just talk to you a bit about some of the the outreach and engagement work you've, you you and Lauren have done in in the local community where mm. you live um and you've where you've done the majority of your work I should say I remember you did a video with a local politician I think about a year ago if I remember correctly you know what other work have you done in the media that you're that you're proud of perhaps some other highlights that um, you and Lauren have done as, as as well to take Mad Millennials forward. Mm, yeah, that's correct. So we've been um, in communication with the local council in my hometown of Maidenhead, um, and that's that was Councillor um, Stuart Carroll, who was very much you know he's um, a mental health and, and public health lead in our borough. So he's very sort of open about wanting to put um, mental health and particularly in the younger population on the agenda in in my sort of town. And I think 
we kind of really wanted to be like national really quickly and like, right, what can we do mm. to, you know, spread as much as possible? And I thought, right, I, I'm in Maidenhead. That's like where I'm from. Let's just start off here locally and let that hopefully snowball. And in the conversations that we've been having with the council, like obviously everything at the moment with the coronavirus has kind of put things um, on hold, I suppose. But we are in conversations with them about putting on a peer-to-peer um, kind of support scheme in Maidenhead. And that will be something that we will roll out, hopefully nationally. So that was something that we will work on. And I, I can talk a little bit about that later. But in terms of like events that we've done in um, Maidenhead, where I'm from, we've been working with a local private mental health hospital called the Cardinal Clinic. And we put on an event last summer and then it was supposed to be this summer but um most likely will um be in another year's time and we basically had like this outdoor tp and we brought lots of different speakers together and it was kind of a bigger version of our launch event um but that felt very local and it really did feel like we were having an impact in the community which was like a massive achievement um, for both of us and we've kind of been involved in like the workplace chats and different kind of conferences that the council has done so yeah we're starting to kind of make a bit of an impact locally um mm. and then hopefully that can be rolled out a bit more nationally mm. i've i sort of had that idea as well Shah, that i would sort of get you know make waves straight away but i think starting small and, and building from your community is the sort of best the best strategy to be honest um obviously mad millennials hasn't been going for a massive amount of time but from the time you've been doing it so far what do you think has been your favourite moment doing it or the one which made you take a step back and think, you know, wow, we're really having an impact here? Mm. I mean, the Cardinal Clinic event that we did was definitely the most sort of successful, tangible thing that I could say that we've sort of achieved. Um, but there, there were obviously little moments where I kind of did kind of step out of myself and thought, OK, like we're really doing this. And this is actually, you know, it's not self-indulgent. It's not about us or about what we want to achieve like this is actually helping other people um and I actually Mm. would say that was at the launch there was a group discussion that we had at the end which was kind of like a panel debate and Mm. there was one guy there who opened up about his sort of experiences of the the paralyzing effects of his sort of OCD and you know could tell that he he hadn't really spoken about it especially not in a in a kind of group scenario like this and which wasn't you know group therapy or anything he'd been told to go to and the reaction just from everybody in the room like Lauren and I weren't even having to engage or like steer the conversation in any direction like it was being completely like taken over in a good way with everybody in the room and the advice that was being um given to him and just like people speaking to him afterwards like I genuinely felt like okay that that was a breakthrough for him being able to kind of be open about his struggles and and that was definitely kind of a pivotal moment did that feel like a big moment in your life as well yeah it did because it it kind of made me feel like like i said what we're doing with my millennials and what we're hoping to achieve in my millennials is actually helping people it's not um you know, this thing that we, we just, we're forcing people to come along with and we're being like, come come to my friends, come along and, you know, watch mm. us put on this event. It was like, actually, no, this is somebody that's come off his own back and is really struggling right now and has genuinely got something really positive out of this event and now was kind of tapped into 
the kind of community that we're building and, and we see people on Instagram that have come to different events and they'll they'll come and then they'll they'll come to another one and then we can see them talking and then they'll kind of do things together and it, it is really snowballing that kind of sense of community which is what we wanted like we can't be there all the time and that would, wouldn't be right for us to be there all the time and for us to orchestrate everything like we want it to kind of be a community where people can have their own connections and do their own meetups and their own calls and their own events and it can kind of spiral like that um so starting to see that um has kind of really validated why we wanted to do this in the first place and that obviously is is comes back to how I feel and and the kind of achievement that that definitely comes with that Mm. we can't talk about Mavillennials without giving a shout out to Lauren how does she help you manage it and vice versa you know just talk to me about about her as a person and, and also the relationship you have with one another Yes. Yeah, so um, as I said, Lauren and I met at Liverpool University and she is now gone on to do a master's in clinical psychology and she's now working as a child and adolescence um, wellbeing practitioner and is also applied to doing a doctorate. So she's very much gone down the sort of academic professional side of mental health. And I mm. think like our relationship, like when we first met, has always been very open um, and I found her to be like very compassionate and and passionate and the conversations that we would have quite early on would touch on mental health and this was back in probably 2013 2014 now and I think Mm. even then it wasn't that long ago but there wasn't a lot of conversations around mental health and and I definitely struggled on a personal level but I found that she was someone that I could talk to, but would also kind of disclose stuff about her herself and her family. So we really sort of bonded over that, if, if that sounds a bit weird, but you know what I mean? Um, mm. And then in terms of like the relationship that we have, it is, yeah, it's very open, very honest. Like there's a lot of kind of understanding of each other and, and like any relationship and, and it's difficult to, get it exactly right and sometimes uh you know I'm conscious that she's she's working full-time job and it's difficult for her to manage how much she wants to do with man millennials whilst doing a full-time job that's also mental health related and very demanding Mm. for her Mm. so you know I'm very aware at the kind of pressures that she has and when we first started man millennials she was in a job where whilst it was still in mental health it was research and she was more office-based so she had a lot more time on her hands so it it is definitely challenging to get the balance in terms of like our friendship and then in terms of what we want to achieve with my millennials and then sort of how much time she can put into things but you know I just tried to communicate as much as possible and say look I'm happy to to do x y and z and you know if you're happy for me to do that that's great if there's anything that I want to sort of chat to her about or say then she's always there but it's just kind of understanding each other's boundaries and what we're both capable of, of doing really but yeah there's a lot of understanding doing mad millennials has also made you and lauren mental health advocates now is this something you're you've come to terms with and accepted or do you think you're still getting used to it hmm i mean when you think about an advocate i, I kind of see that as somebody that's using their voice to maybe um be the voice for somebody else and kind of speak up about issues that other people may not 
be able to and mm-hmm. I don't know if I can really relate um relate myself into into that word necessarily but I am aware that by speaking publicly and on a platform where we have engaging followers so to speak there is an mm-hmm. element of responsibility I think and I mm-hmm. think when mm-hmm. things happen whether that's in the news or whether it's something that I'm going through personally or if I've I've kind of like witnessed I do feel like a sense of right I need to kind of speak up about this and there's a lot of people that may not be able to find the words to articulate this and Mm. I know that whilst the platform is you know we're, we're growing but you know it's there's a limited amount of people but I still feel like there's people that are engaging with us that I want to kind of honor by articulating some of the stresses mm, or some of the observations of that I've mm. made so it's a difficult one like I think I'm definitely would definitely be accepting of it but whether I feel like I am or not yet um is something that yeah we'll, we'll see yeah <laughs> I get you I get you I think I think I struggled a lot at the start with like people calling me one I still mm. don't feel I still don't feel a hundred percent in it but mm. I definitely am better than I was before. I think I was very much like almost disassociating myself from it at the start. But I think I've gotten a lot better at sort of being, you know, being someone that people mm. can come to and talk to. And and I'm also I've also sort of developed boundaries and and stuff like that, which you I guess you have to as as people who are in the public eye, yeah, and the responsibilities, I guess. Um, yeah, and I think that's a nice thing, really, having people that you know do you do you feel like comfortable reaching out but of course there comes a point where you're like I can only do so much and and mm. even for Lauren being qualified it still doesn't mean you're kind of open to being absolutely everybody's therapist like there has to be boundaries yeah. and you have to be able to signpost people um mm-hmm. which is something that I've I think I've been good at it's just the kind of communication can be quite over overwhelming when you've got you know your own personal stuff as well but yeah it's all about balance and, and boundaries. exactly exactly um and just finally um Shah what plans have you got coming up for Mad Millennials that you can possibly share with us uh maybe event exclusive or two obviously uh, circumstances uh <laughs> pending and uh for anyone listening to the pod who wants to follow Mad Millennials or come to one of your next events whenever they may be probably in 2021 but there we go um <laughs> where can they go yeah, so we were planning on doing another Cardinal Clinic event, which was the uh, hosted at the um, mental health hospital locally, but I assume that will all be pushed back. Um, but our sort of exciting plan, which we have been kind of talking about for a while now and is really like the forefront of what we wanted to do with Mama Millennials, is our peer-to-peer support scheme. Um, mm-hmm. And we were going to announce that, uh, and then lockdown got announced. So we thought, right, we'll park that for a bit because, you know, we don't really have the capacity to make it sort of online because we really wanted to um, sort of gather applicants. But that sounds a bit kind of formal, um, but just interest from people who may want to kind of be a mentor, a mad millennial mentor, we're going to call them. Um, and yeah, so we basically wanted to put that out, see what kind of... Um, feedback comes back and and what interests there are and then put on a training day um, which Lauren is qualified to do and bring in um, other kind of resources and give um, these people a qualification to then go on to be peer-to-peer support leaders and how that will work 
is we'll kind of have a structure, but it will be flexible. And the idea is that we would like for people to commit to um, probably once or twice a month and they will be, um, it's, it's difficult because you don't quite have the language around what the words will be yet. So bear with me because, mm. but um <laughs> We'll have we'll say it's a work in progress, don't worry. It's a work in progress. <laughs> um, I, I know what it, what's happening in my head, but yeah, it's the, the kind of language around it. But they will kind of be the leader, again, probably not the right word, but of the group. Um, and the idea is that they will um, put the feelers out to people in their local area and hopefully those that feel like they would benefit from this kind of peer-to-peer support group would come along and each week or each once a month there would be a topic of conversation whether that's social media pressures or finances or mental health broadly and they would kind of structure um we would help them we would kind of give them a a syllabus again not quite the right word but um and then it would kind of go from there really and then we would hope that that peer-to-peer support group would um function on its own um but would kind of follow the kind of um guidelines that we would set and hope that they would adhere to but essentially it would be a place where people can feel uh, like connected and less alone and have more freedom to be able to talk about their struggles which they may not find in their friendship group or they may not find at home or with the housemates and that that would kind of set to to be that space for them and then the idea is that we would then run sort of quarterly events where we would meet up and initially we would start this quite locally so as I said like sort of around Maidenhead and then probably London and then hopefully it would kind of spread a little bit and the events would be bigger um but yeah it would it would kind of work a little bit like that um so we will be announcing that when there's a bit more certainty about when we'd be able to do the training course because obviously we wanted to keep it quite concise um and obviously just kind of get the idea a bit more in concrete but that is our plan and we've got the funding for that um so yeah hopefully by the end of the year that will be announced properly but we'll just have to see and our website um is a work in progress as well um (laughs) but nearly finished and the idea is that people will be able to go on there put in their postcode and it would kind of have a drop down of where their local kind of meetup groups in so i suppose if you're somebody that goes to like aa meetings or aba meetings it would kind of feel a little bit like that um but obviously different um but that kind of format and in terms of where to connect with us at the moment really we use instagram the most um like any millennials i suppose um (laughs) and our handle for that is just mad millennials bit complicated on facebook and twitter because somebody already beat us to it on there even though there isn't another mad millennials i don't really know what's going on so on facebook it's mad millennials uk and then on twitter it's mad millennials underscore Um, Excellent. And uh, we'll put a link to all of those in the description of the pod. We've talked about Mad Millennial, Shah. Now, it's an amazing project you've got there. And I know I'm very grateful to you for for doing it and for for bringing me in to to the, the, the work that you do. Now I just want to talk about your own journey. So first of all, just talk to me a bit about your early life, your teenage years, and whether looking back there were any sort of early mental health experiences that you can pinpoint. You know, who's the, who's the, um, who's the Charlotte we meet here? So, I mean, I have always felt like a very anxious child. Um, mm. Child, obviously not child now, but like I, I think I, I was. And growing up, I was, I suppose, very sensitive. 
Um, I'm very acutely aware of uh, my kind of environment and my surroundings and would find things quite sort of uncomfortable um, and difficult a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I think my parents probably just thought I was a difficult child and in inverted commas um or a warrior or a warrior <laughs> or somebody yeah that somebody that just <laughs> asks a lot of questions all the time and that's definitely not changed um and I don't think anything remarkable was um sort of presented like as a child growing up it was really only until I mean obviously on a personal level like, there were definitely things that I can think of that worried me um more mm. than perhaps other people and other friends my age but it's difficult to know um and it wasn't really until secondary school that things started to kind of be more on my radar and I think I was just very um very self-critical and thought that I was crazy in inverted commas and that the way my and I, I didn't really think about it as mental health but I I was very emotional, very sensitive. And I guess all these things could be put down to hormonal um, teenage girl kind of in a, in, in the, that kind of bracket. But in reflection now, I can see I really wasn't well growing up um, as a teenager, especially. And I was incredibly anxious. My thoughts were very obsessive and you know, I had cripplingly low self-esteem, very low self-esteem, very little opinion of myself, yet would also feel like not very understood and that desperately wanted to be understood. So I, I kind of felt quite fluctuating between one end of the spectrum all the time. It was like, mm. well, some people would think I'm really shy because I'm like really, I'm, I'm really anxious. But then in the other times, like I could be really like, quite demanding of what I of like what I wanted and like in my family situation I would be quite stubborn all those kind of words that mm. I think would kind of fly around so yeah I mean nothing sort of overly um concerning necessarily like from the the outward outwardly looking in but now I look back I realize how I was struggling from a very young age and it's very mm. obvious to me now um and I think if I had some of the support that I know is in schools now, things might have been um, different. It might not have gone the way it, it did go. Um, mm. But yeah, I hope that's kind of answered it a bit because it's quite. Yeah, a I think so. Question. You you, um, you opened up about your story, Shah, in a yeah. in a Times article last year, where you spoke about your experiences living with um, obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD and mm. anxiety, specifically health anxiety, which really affected you. Now, before we dive into that story, just mm-hmm. tell me why you wanted to write that article and why you felt ready to share your story. Yeah, so I was approached um, by a journalist at the Times who was putting together a document for, it was results day, and he'd seen what um, I was kind of doing on Man Millennials, and I think there was a local article in in um, the Maidenhead Advertiser, which is, yeah, my hometown, and he had kind of reached out and basically said that, you know, we're looking to put together this document, um, for kids on results day and we'd really like to sort of share your story and it just felt like well first of all why would I not you know use this platform to 
grow greater awareness around my millennials. So that was the kind of one point of it. But then, and it was weird actually, because it was the first thing I'd done and spoken about sort of publicly that wasn't under the mad millennials kind of umbrella. And I kept trying to say that in the interview with him, I kept trying to, you know, bring it back to that, but he was very much focused on me personally and my experiences. So it was quite unusual, um, but also quite liberating, I think, because Mm. I just felt like if a kid who's just about to start university and they're reading this and they see, okay, you know, that's how I'm feeling right now, or or that's something I worry about I could go through. Like, I just wanted to put into words how it had been for me and how, you know, and how I am now. So it felt, definitely felt like the right time. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was conscious about what I was saying and how much I was saying, but I think I tried to get the right measure of it, hopefully. <laughs> mm. Just for the listeners, um, Shah, who might not know what the true definition of of what OCD is and how it affects someone, you know, you obviously hear a lot that people who, you know, it's almost casually used a lot of the time Mm. um, in in normal conversations. Just define it for us. And why is it, you know, very problematic that we don't um, casualize or trivialize it, I think is the better word to say. Yeah, definitely. So OCD obviously stands for obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, which can be characterised as frequent obsessive thoughts um, and often compulsive behaviours uh, going along with those thoughts. And I think the kind of thing that sort of sets it apart, so to speak, from um, perhaps um, some of the stereotypes that surround it are the kind of repetitive, unpleasant, intrusive um, and uncontrolled thought patterns and behaviours that go along with it. Mm. it. You know, it's something that is... Um, very distressing and it's much more than liking your pencils lined up and it's much more than feeling the need to you know wash your hands you know like it it is it can be those things definitely but it also could be something completely unique and I think that's the thing with it is like yes it is um, you know obsessive compulsive behaviors and thoughts but it can be so broad and I think for me my the way it kind of presented itself was with thoughts which was called pure O and when this kind of started for me I thought well I kept, it kept coming back to this kind of OCD label and I was like well no that's just like people that like to clean and I really thought that um, and of mm. course like I said it, it can present itself in that way for um, many people but for me it it wasn't it was entirely thought-based um there were very little behaviors that went along with this and I thought it can't be like it literally there was no awareness whatsoever of pure o um and even with OCD like you said there is a there's a lot of kind of misconceptions around it and how it can impact people and how destructive it can be for so many people and whilst a lot of people do struggle with it um you know it, it it is it's really difficult and it can be really difficult for people to understand as well if they've had no experiences with it um but yeah it is quite a complex one and it's something that when I think growing up there were there were little signs I suppose of things I would do but nothing that really took hold and you could kind of say oh perhaps that was always meant to in inverted commas meant to come out in me um but yeah it wasn't really until I was 19 that you know it, it did 
yeah, it's really it's really eye-opening what you said there, Shah. Because I've not ever heard of that 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 phrase that you use. So that's it's really educational for me, and I'm I'm sure it's educational for all the listeners. You also wrote an article for um, a website called OCD Action, where you discussed your diagnosis when you were 17, and then a really horrible experience whilst you went traveling with your best friend in Cambodia. Now, if you could just just tell me about what happened and how that story affected your OCD. Yeah, so that was the first time that I'd shared the, the details of that um, experience. And it was also something I've spoken about in therapy countless times, but nothing mm. I've actually put pen to paper with. Um, and, I, I, and I'm still kind of shocked that I did do that. But also, I'm kind of just trying to own it because it felt the right place to do it. It was OCD action. And I felt, you know, if I, if I, if I can't talk about it there, you know, where can I? Because this is a safe space. People will understand the condition and how it kind of manifests. So, yeah, firstly, just wanted to say that. But in terms of the actual event and what happened, um, mm. like you said, yeah, we were in Cambodia. I was traveling. I was 19 um, and I we were spiked. And mm-hmm. I don't remember a great deal about the night. There are some sort of false memories that I, I, I may have kind of um, attributed to that and it was very traumatic I definitely mm-hmm. have um PTSD symptoms surrounding that particular event but kind of mm-hmm. the aftermath of that waking up the next day um it really felt as though something had just completely changed in my brain and mm-hmm. whilst I was out of the experience that we were in the night before it was like it was only the beginning of mm. of OCD as as I was about to know it. And the way this kind of exacerbated my OCD, because if I think back to sort of the months leading up to that, there were things that I was kind of getting a bit, you know, I don't like the word fixated, but I don't really like obsessive feels not quite right either. But there were things that I was kind of fixating a little bit on. It might have been like oh, my teeth or it might have been, oh, this bag, my bag broke and I just couldn't think about anything. And it was just moving from one thing to another while we were traveling, but it wasn't, wasn't anything that, you know, it was really taking over my thought process. Whereas this, this event, this sort of trauma that we went through the next day, it was that every single thing I did came back to that. And I couldn't be in the moment, not even for one millisecond. It was just every Thing that I thought about everything that I did every movement that I made was in relation to that night and we carried on traveling and there were amazing experiences that we did go on to have but it was like it was like I was wasn't fully living I was just kind of in a bit of a daze and a bit of a dream and, and nothing could really move me away from what had happened um mm. and my OCD thoughts were you know it, I kind of felt like I needed to um change them myself so I would spend so long like we were on buses for hours and hours obviously moving around Vietnam Cambodia and I would get so sort of tormented by my own thoughts and feel so frustrated at myself and then say well I can't have this anymore so I'm just going to think about something else that's equally as distressing just to move away from that chain of thoughts if that makes any sense Mm. so the themes would kind of be like violent or sexual or um existential wonder questions about the world like all sorts of stuff which I think 
having those thoughts, I remember speaking to my best friend at the time, she was like, well, I've had, I've had those thoughts before. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand about Puro because they think, oh, well, I've imagined pushing someone in front of a bus before, but I just forget about it. And I said, well, the difference is that my brain um, and somebody that's going through this will kind of cling on to that thought and then take that as like the gospel and think well that must mean that I want that to happen because it's my thoughts that's because I'm telling myself and I had no sort of mindful awareness at this time like now you hear things like you know let the thoughts pass you by like clouds and sit with them and you are not your thoughts and all these amazing things that just weren't in our mm. kind of language at that time and there's a massive amount of naivety um around um mental health anyway so I think I was what is happening like how can I be having these thoughts and that not mean that that's what I want to happen like how can I be imagining all these violent things happening to my parents and that mean I don't want that to happen like I couldn't I couldn't grasp it um and it was just complete terror um and with that sort of came relentless panic attacks and from going to sort of quite a depressive um end of the spectrum of really just not wanting to, to to deal with it really any longer to then the complete opposite where when I did did come home um I I would be having constant panic attacks and really fearing death so it yeah it was a really difficult um period of my life and actually it was all in quite a condensed period like a lot happened in that year in 2013 but yeah hopefully that kind of answers your question in, mm. in some detail <laughs> yeah definitely 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 pal after this traumatic event you you received therapy for your OCD now firstly how did that help you and if so in what way yeah so when I got back it was becoming increasingly more obvious that I did need to kind of sit down and speak to somebody and I, I felt so I had therapy when I when I was younger I'd had it when I was um about 16, 17, but the issues that we're speaking about then were much more sort of social anxiety, generalised anxiety, but this was specifically for my OCD. And I, I, I had so much shame because I genuinely believed I was all of the things that my brain was telling me I was. Mm. Um, so I, I really went into it just, every, I, would, I would dread it. I, and I would really try and build myself up to, how am I going to tell this person all these thoughts in my head? And it just didn't feel like a safe space initially. Um, and it took a while. And the therapist I had at the time, like I do remember like uh, lots of different details from lots of different therapists that I had. And, and this particular one, he was so kind, so compassionate and just really, really made me understand that the thoughts that I was having were thoughts and that the, it wasn't an extension of my belief system or anything that I mm. wanted to happen and I think that was really pivotal so rather than with some types of therapy and it's you know challenging the thoughts all the time and there was an element of that but it was mainly just being reassured that I'm not a bad person and this is the label and I think for some people labels can be detrimental and in many cases it, you know we want to move away from them but in terms of getting this diagnosis of having obsessive compulsive disorder like it was so important to me because I knew right this is what I've got this is what it is and then it was much more right okay so what we're going to do to work on it um and and generally the 
therapy that comes along with OCD is is things like CBT and it's also exposure therapy mm-hmm. so if somebody is particularly um uh, obsessing over um you know something or they've got a lot of phobias about something then you would kind of work their way up to um being sort of comfortable around that and there's lots of things that they would do um and each time I went I just felt a little bit more understood and it just made the whole experience less fearful which I think you know therapy is is it can be difficult but Mm. it is definitely there to help you and I would urge anybody that was in that position to seek help because you know Mm. it definitely saved my life it's really it's really amazing that you talked about how that that kind therapist at the time helped you articulate mm. how you were feeling in a way that perhaps you weren't even ready yourself at, at that point to Shah. um no you then managed not to, oh you weren't you, you wouldn't say you were ready at that point no I don't I don't think I was I mean I, I I there was another best friend of mine from home who her um brother had actually been through very similar um OCD to what I had kind of gone through and mm. she was so kind and again she said your these thoughts these kind of intrusive obsessive thoughts like they're actually the opposite of you and opposite of what you want to do and and, and who you are and that's why they're having such a strong impact and mm. I couldn't rationalize like you know I'm much better now at being able to see the thoughts for what they are and see the distress and the anxiety for what they are. but back then it was so my thoughts were so irrational and I couldn't see the wood from the trees so going into these therapy sessions like you said, I, I I I was ready for somebody to kind of help me, but I mm. I didn't believe that I could be helped. Like I honestly thought that was it. I'm just going to have relentless, obsessive, intrusive thoughts for the rest of my life, and if that's it, then you know I can't cope with that. So it mm. it really it did it really helped. It really did help mm. having the therapy. You, you then managed to start your degree, Shah, and move to Liverpool mm. where you studied psychology, like you, we've said previously. Now, unfortunately, you developed glandular fever, which started, I, I, it's fair to say, quite early on in your degree. And mm. it started affecting your mental health in the form of panic attacks. Now, just just tell me about how those panic attacks started and, and why the glandular fever, you think, was affecting your mental health in this way. Yeah, so I got it about three weeks into uni and obviously I was trying to do the whole going out all the time and, and throwing myself into freshers. So for a long time, I just thought, oh, I just can't cope with the the late nights and all the booze and all of that. Um, but then it became increasingly more obvious that something more like sinister was going on. And I, I kind of saw it as the, my my physical sort of um, body, you know, as much as they're both intertwined, catching up with the mental health that I was going through. And mm. it really kind of just knocked me for six. And I, I went home thinking I would just be going home for a weekend. And that was it. My whole first term um, until mid-January, I didn't go back. And like on the social side of things, like that is so crucial for starting off university. So it was and initially like that was all my worry and then the panic attacks just took over and I couldn't even think about uni or friends or life beyond what my four walls in my bedroom were um and it was incredibly scary and I honestly I was having panic attacks relentlessly not like just non-stop I think it was just like one big panic attack really I wasn't sleeping um and this is kind of when my health anxiety really spiked I'd become very, very aware of 
the physical sensations in my body. And, you know, like if you haven't slept, then everything is much more heightened anyway at the best of times let alone kind of being ill on top of that and like the ironic thing with glandular fever is that people are supposed to be really sleepy when they have it and I had insomnia so that was fun (laughs) and I would be going to the doctors multiple times a week with headaches that I thought were brain tumors and all sorts of things it was it was yeah it was very relentless and I don't really know how I kind of got out of that, I suppose. I, I did, I had, there was, there was a pivotal moment where um, the doctors kind of finally realised what was going on and it I, it did take a while, to be honest. Um, and then I, I started on medication, which um, definitely improved the situation. But yeah, it was very scary and it, it kind of felt like that was the rounding up of that year. That was the end of 2013. So yeah, a lot a lot went down in that year <laughs> sounds like a bit it sounds like a very uh eventful year doesn't it yeah a bit 2020-esque yeah. <laughs> yeah you you eventually emerged out the other side Shah, and you know you graduated with first class honors which is a massive achievement given what you had been through you've also turned this massive negative into a positive with the work you do now for mad millennials firstly you know what do you think you learned from that period looking back about yourself and and who you are as a person and actually do you think that this was the moment where it actually sparked your desire to help others through mad millennials in your story yeah definitely i think um on the one hand like it it showed me that reaching out and asking for help is absolutely crucial and to never be afraid of that um, as the kind of as one kind of massive learning curve, which I well, I did do to be honest, but obviously I was hesitant at the start because of the shame that I felt around it. One topic which I was really keen to speak to you about, Shah, and it's probably one you'll enjoy talking about the most on this pod, which is your music career, which you only started quite recently, although you've been writing and making music for a good time before that. So just talk to you about how the opportunity came about and why you decided to take the plunge. Yeah, so I, like you said, it's only been recently in the last sort of two years that I've actually started kind of putting things out there in terms of singing and cover videos and then sort of in the last six months releasing my own stuff. Um, for friends and family that obviously know me well, I've always been singing, writing, um, performing in one way or another, but I knew I wanted to go to uni and I wanted to do psychology. So I kind of parked that for a bit, Um, but it was always in the back of my head and thinking about how I was going to kind of get back into it once I finished uni. So it kind of coincided well with um, the end of uni and starting to work with a producer and kind of putting my ideas and the kind of songwritings that I had been gathering over the years together um and I don't know what like made me sort of take the plunge I think it was more just a gradual process of okay I'm gonna give this a go because it's always been something I wanted to do to actually liking it a lot very quickly and then realizing no actually this is the career direction I want to go around um and I just kind of took it from there really you kept it simple with your stage name, Shah, which is just your first name. Um, how would you describe your sound and the music you create? I did, yeah. Um, I would describe it as a sort of warm R&B, um, but sort of with contemporary melodic pop influences. So I wouldn't sort of put mm-hmm. myself into 
um, solidly into one category. But I would say sort of an amalgamation between R&B with the kind of pop um, like sort of chorus, um, which mm. I kind of seem to be drawn to a lot. And, and what would you say your inspirations are, whether that's in the R&B scene, so the likes of Ella May or uh, mm-hmm. Kiana Lede or, you know, um, Ariana Grande? And what influences have inspired you outside of that scene as well? Yeah, so um, in terms of sort of growing up, I was always drawn to strong female vocalists, um, sort of like Lauren Hill, um, Amy mm-hmm. Winehouse. Mm-hmm. And those are kind of um, pivotal artists that I Gwen Stefani those kind of strong female artists which I was always very drawn to um and kind of growing up my taste kind of grew more towards sort of the R&B um kind of beats and I think now that's definitely the genre which I kind of identify and listen to most um but I also like my dad is very into music and he is very into sort of indie music and Arctic Monkeys, The Strokes, Muse. Um, and he would often play records which have very strong songwriting. And I, I think mm. Arctic Monkeys particularly, um, which I would grow up listening to. And there's something that I... I've always wanted to kind of emulate for myself, like say Amy Winehouse is somebody who, you know, wrote so, so beautifully raw. And Mm -hmm. that was something that I have always found that I would write sort of poems and in my diaries and like jot little ideas down as I was growing up. And I definitely wanted to be the kind of artist that had something to say. And Mm. I didn't really, when I first started like writing to make, an actual track um more sort of recently I didn't really sit down and think right I'm going to write about my mental health necessarily but it was just coming out in the language that I would use and the words I would be drawn to um but I've definitely taken um the lead from other female vocalists and in in the past so that would be kind of my main draw I'd say Mm. and just talk to me about you know performing and being on stage and and what's that like for your mental health you know what is what's the process like before a gig during after it when that endorphin rush hits you um do you think the the stage is somewhere where you can truly be yourself or is it a bit of escapism or is it a bit of both yeah no I think you're definitely right and you'll hear a lot of sort of artists whether that's um musicians or actors talk about how the stage can very much be um a a platform where you can escape and and whilst you are as a as a musician being yourself and kind of outpouring your emotions and and the work that you've been um writing and and performing there is still an element of I'm not really myself I'm kind of hiding behind this persona and I don't I don't Mm. want to do that like I want to be as authentic as possible and when I do perform and the gigs I've done like I'm very open and and talking between the songs as well about my experiences and why I've written what I've written and stuff so that is very important to me however the performing element of it is still very much there and I have danced and sung and acted while I was growing up like in an amateur kind of level um but I always 
loved being on stage and at secondary school like I, I did drop sorry if you can hear my dog barking she's really going for it now <laughs> that's um, fine don't worry <laughs> so yeah I mean I, I, I did drama at school and I just absolutely loved the concept of performing and telling stories and trying to and and being I, I suppose with acting it's slightly different because you are acting somebody else not yourself and singing and, and music is much more authentic if if you are truly being yourself um sorry this is a bit of a long-winded answer but weirdly for my mental health like I surprised and I think I surprised a lot of people as well like my first headline gig which was at 93 feet east I had a lot of friends that came and afterwards like what people were like I was so surprised like you were like a different person up there and you had so much confidence and like I was half kind of like taken aback a bit I was like oh does this mean like you think I'm just a little shy girl in the corner normally but then on the other side of it I was like actually no like I was really kind of able to put my anxieties aside and just perform and do what I love and I think that just came through well I hope it did anyway so Mm. I mean I do get very nervous beforehand because I'm an anxious person anyway so my levels are taken a little bit too high above the the line that I would quite like them to be of like functioning um Mm. but I'm learning things that um I can do to kind of manage that and obviously turn it into adrenaline um Mm. afterwards is a weird a weird feeling there's definitely an endorphin rush and I felt it was like a high that you know I've never experienced before when I came off stage for the first time um and I can I can see how sort of addictive that must be if you've been doing that for a long time and it just gets bigger and bigger but I can also see the downside to that and then the kind of need to seek validation in other aspects of your life so it's something that from a psychological standpoint like I'm I was very aware of and I hope that that insight that I have towards myself and kind of noticing how that felt will benefit me and I can kind of create a bit more structure around supporting my mental health and how I'm going to perform and how I'm going to feel after and leading up to it etc. You you talked there about a bit about how your friends were quite surprised to see you you know adopt this persona and and have this such this air of confidence about mm. you when you were sort of doing your music videos and sort of having to perform in that in that way was that hard for you to get in the mood for it was it was there a, a sense of sort of social anxiety about you know this sort of video content being put out there and mm. you being out there so to speak or, or was it something you just sort of embraced straight away. Oh, no, I definitely felt, I'd say, it wasn't like I needed building up to it. It was more just sort of feeling a bit awkward beginning mm. to do these things. But I just kept reminding myself, like, this is the first time I've done, each of these times are the first times of doing these things, whether that was my first gig, my first headline gig, my first music video. And I was like, I have to give myself a bit of a break here. And I think the beauty of, like, the music video that I did was that I reached out to, it was predominantly an all-female team, and the thing that was sort of the most special about it was that we were all, it was all our first music video, so whether that was a videographer or um, the lighting or the makeup artist, like everyone was in this experience, like all learning together, and obviously it will not always be like that, and I'm sure there will be times where I feel 
a bit kind of like performance anxiety and not feeling like good enough. But I, it, it was such a nice experience for my first music video that we felt like we were all in it together a little bit. So I was able to kind of shake off any nerves thinking that everybody else is 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 going to be feeling that about their own craft and it's not just about me like the director like that she she is just as important that as I was in that at that moment so everyone's feeling that and I kind of just pushed that out my mind and obviously it's different when you're performing because it is much more exposing um and eyes are all on you but I think the the biggest thing I can do is just say to myself like uh, like I'm finding my feet with this like I'm I'm not people take time to kind of really settle into um, the way that they perform and how they kind of conduct themselves. And I just need to give myself a bit of a break, really, because <laughs> I can be hard <laughs> exactly. on myself. <laughs> I think I think for all of us, self-care is important, but not something that we do to the best of our abilities, especially mm. those of us working in mental health. Um, when it comes to obviously managing, you know, your music career and managing Mad Millennials, is this something that you've had to you've struggled with to find a balance or has it been something that you've sort of gotten to grips with pretty quickly? You know, how, how do you sort of balance those two? And, and also how do you create a separation between, you know, performing and just sort of, you know, switching off and just being Charlotte again? Yeah. So I'm glad you've asked me that because it's something I've been thinking about increasingly at the moment. Um, I think when I first put out like my first sort of music um post that made sense for people and then when I first kind of put out my story about my mental health it was a bit kind of like oh okay but it kind of made sense in a way and as I was kind of doing both simultaneously it's still in to my mind it made sense but I don't know whether for other people it was kind of a bit like oh okay are we doing the music thing are we doing the mental health thing are we mm. doing the man millennials thing and for me I just kept plowing on because my brain I, I did a combined honors at university so I kept doing like communications and then psychology and flipping between them and I am quite I'll kind of think about lots of different things at once it's just the way I am so initially I didn't give that much thought about it um but perhaps other people might have kind of found that a little bit more confusing and how they kind of join in and recently I've been kind of worrying a little bit about whether I guess other people's opinions and and whether some people may be wondering you know am I doing one thing to benefit the other and well can you only talk about mental health when you're talking purely about my millennials or can I only talk about music when I and I got the other day I kind of got myself quite bogged down with it and worrying about like essentially what other people think and and I, I'm somebody that's telling other people to try and not worry about what people think and it just mm. really really got me um mm. and I there has been moments when I'm thinking well on my personal say Instagram on one post on my story it might be music related but then 10 minutes later something might come through for my millennials or I might see something that I feel compelled to share because it's it touches me from a mental health standpoint and I'll share all three things consecutively and I won't bat an eyelid. And, mm. you know, I do wonder and, and I guess worry a little bit, but equally I just have to keep kind of telling myself like they're not mutually exclusive. And for me anyway, you know, they're my passions and and both of those things, um, they, they, and, and mental health isn't just a passion and it's, it's me, it's what I go through and it's what ev everybody goes through. Everybody has mental health, but the struggles that I go through, that's so personal to me. So I have to just keep reminding myself, like I am entitled to talk about both things in the same sen sentence, if that makes sense to me. And in the same way as anybody else is about any other 
two things that they've got going on in their lives or however many things they've got going on in their lives. So mm. yeah, those doubts have definitely crept in and, and in terms of managing it, um, I don't sort of say, and maybe sometimes I, I should because I do struggle. Like if I'm solely doing my millennials work, like last summer when I was putting on the um, Cardinal Clinic mental health event and it was just, I couldn't see anything music related. Like I couldn't even, I couldn't turn that part of my brain on. And then mm. other times I've been like solely working on my, my single release and not able. And I think that's not that healthy for me. I, I work much better when I am able to sort of flip between. And whilst it might not be like a constant, like minute by minute switch up, it's like, I can still, log on to uh, turn on my millennials and, and look at the emails on that. And then, you know, if another email comes through and it's music related, I can switch between. So I'm just trying to be like as flexible as possible and not shut myself off to be like, right, I'm having a week of this and a week of that and just trying mm. to let it flow because that's how my thoughts would, would anyway, if that makes sense. Mm. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Before I point the listeners to all your amazing music, Shah, <laughs> Who would be your dream collab if you had to, whether it's a feature on their song or a duet in the likes of Aretha Franklin and George Michael? Oh, that's so cool. Okay. I mean, if if she was still alive, like it would have to be Amy Winehouse. But just as we are at the moment, I would absolutely love to do something with Frank Ocean. As cool as the collabs are where you've got like, I mean don't get me wrong like I would absolutely love to do like a female um collaboration with like another mm. um female vocalist and have that kind of energy that you we would bring to it but in mm. terms of like making a, a a track that I feel would have the most impact and like would be the most meaningful I think you want to have that that balance why uh Frank Ocean maybe uh, instead of say the weekend or Bryson Tiller or uh Miguel what's supposed what's special about Frank Ocean to you I that's a difficult question but I would definitely just say like the kind of the beats and the chill kind of aspect to it I would kind of go for and yeah I just think he's incredibly talented and I when I listen to it like I he's got the sort of albums that I would listen to all the way through and not change and no skips no skips <laughs> and there's just so many great great ones so is there anyone else that you'd like to work with actually thinking about it childish gambino would be absolutely a dream because he is incredibly talented and one of the first covers i put out was um redbone and i play it live and i'm just absolutely obsessed with that song so if i okay that just gets me excited thinking about it but doing a version of of that with him would be amazing <laughs> i remember when uh, i remember when i saw him live at lovebox and he did, did summertime magic oh. yeah oh. he did summertime magic and i was absolutely blown away because that is still one of, that's still one of my favorite records that he's done from an R&B so perspective, but like hearing that live was just poor. Yeah. Different. There is something about live music. Oh, it's the best. Mm. <laughs> and uh, just finally, Shah, where can people find you on listening platforms or social media? If they want to get involved, hear your music or come to one of your future shows. Yes. So I am across all socials as at Shah Music UK. 
somebody will already beat me to it with the Shah and the Shah music. So <laughs> that's what we got for now. Um, but yeah, so find me on there and I will be that my, my O2 Academy is LinkedIn gig, which got postponed has been rescheduled, but we will see, we will see when things feel a little bit more normal, but you know, hopefully in a not too distant future, things will pick up again and I will be performing live. <laughs> Our final topic of conversation, Char, and it's one I have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, I know there's extenuating circumstances, but how would you say your mental health is at the moment? At the moment, I would say I am managing better than I thought I would be considering the circumstances that we're in. Um, yeah, up and down in terms of like daily mood, um, but in terms of mental health, I would say I'm managing fairly well excellent and that's as probably as we can only do our best I always say exactly like and I think everything is tainted by what we're going through collectively at the moment so in it's and I'm very aware for how many people are struggling at the moment and I think if I had been where I was five years ago six years ago it would be very different like I can't even imagine so it makes me very um emotional to think of how many people are struggling mentally at the moment so I am I feel very fortunate that I am managing um to the best of my ability but it's not even Mm. to my ability is it it's just Mm. it's just it just is isn't it sometimes Mm. we struggle and sometimes we we feel all right you we've talked about your experiences of OCD and anxiety Shah what things do you find in life that that trigger those and your mental health generally? Is it, you know, it could be things people might say, sounds, sensations, you know, what can you tell the listeners about how how that affects you? Or have you not even maybe figured all of them out yet? Yeah, I mean, definitely at the moment, I would say my OCD is higher than it has been in a few years. Um, mm. And there are things that are definitely making it more challenging for me and for many people that struggle with their mental health the thing I've, I've I've written about for my millennials recently is that, you know, we're being told to do the things that as mental health professionals and mental health workers and people, people working in mental health would advise you to actually do if you are struggling. So going out the house, meeting friends, all these things that now we're not able to do um, is exacerbating um, the mental health of so many people. And also like, with OCD and it never presented itself for for me in this way a lot of people really struggle with um compulsively washing their hands or compulsively cleaning like and now we're being told to actually do that um so it's kind of quite paradoxical to what we would tell people so I definitely feel that things are more heightened for me right now but it's still Mm. manageable which I'm thankful for and I definitely feel more anxious. I definitely feel um, like I'm overthinking things, but I also feel like it's in some ways, like I can quantify it a bit more. And I suppose like it should never feel like you need to justify how you're thinking and, and feeling because I don't believe that that's how it works. But for me anyway, I'm kind of going, well, it's understandable. I'm feeling more anxious right now. It's understandable. I'm you know, obsessing about things and, and worrying about things like it's all totally understandable and I think like now more than ever 
a lot of people understand those emotions and those feelings because people that may never have struggled with their mental health are now feeling anxious because you know we're in a global pandemic so it kind mm. of makes sense <laughs> mm. so yeah I definitely feel that um but I mean in, in out of the kind of COVID aside things that do trigger my mental health um the obvious things like lack of sleep like if I've been like working a lot and I I'm guilty of like packing a lot of things in. I can't mm. really, I can sit still and I can like enjoy an evening in, but I've got to know like my plans. And I've got to, I've got to have a full diary it, that it weirdly. Um, so those things, but yeah, I say that and those things can actually trigger me. So it's quite ironic. <laughs> um, and noises, loud noises, um, you know, being around a lot of people that I don't know, all the things that you would expect. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of working, working mm. them through and kind of analysing them when, when it's needed. Mm. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life, Shah, to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that worked and, and maybe which ones that haven't? Yeah, so recently, and by no means am I a gym bunny or anybody that actively enjoys working out but I have found um just like even like walking or like running but not to a time or like not with any kind of set goals in mind but just getting outside in the fresh air um being a bit active whether that's like a walk or just sitting outside and whatever that definitely helps me that's the kind of more um environmental aspect and then in terms of kind of like psychological kind of tools that I would sort of do on myself like um I think acceptance is like the biggest thing for me like I spent so long thinking I needed to challenge every single one of my thoughts because that's what I was initially told in therapy and now like a lot of the time it's just being like okay about how I'm feeling and not kind of punishing myself for for thinking a certain way or like overanalyzing a situation it's just like accepting and sitting with it and allowing the emotion to be there and not kind of push it away and also distraction but not like avoidance but just taking myself out of the situation or the mindset that I'm in by right I'm going to do something else and it could literally just be like I'm going to go and watch something I'm going to have a shower I'm going to take myself and my mind out of the rumination that it's in I find to be really helpful but there's also things and I'm not the best at kind of sticking to all the things that I know will will help you like if I was talking to somebody else they'd be like you need to do yoga you need to meditate and I'm like yeah I'm a bit shit that I need to kind of yeah <laughs> how do you support um how do you support friends in your own social group Shah who may have mental health issues themselves or may be struggling with a with a poor period of mental health so I'd like to think because I'm quite open about talking about my mental health that friends feel that they can speak to me and I do think to a great extent that is the case but sometimes I worry that friends might think oh because I haven't struggled as much as Charlotte or I haven't been in the same place as she has been that maybe I shouldn't talk about how I'm feeling and like I am quite aware of that um with my friends and I know that I, I encourage my friends to talk about how they're thinking and feeling like however small it may seem to them because it's all relative and like I've said before like everyone has a mental health and I would like to think that I encourage my friends to feel safe enough to do that with me and 
hopefully and somebody that they can kind of seek a little bit of comfort from mm. hopefully <laughs> and just and just as a final question Shah, and this has been an absolutely amazing pod and i've really appreciated your your openness and your honesty if there's anyone listening to it which might who might be living with ocd might be struggling or just wanting someone to reassure them that you know everything will be okay in the end uh despite what they're going through what message or advice would you give them so i think thank you and i've I've been it's been such a pleasure to be asked to do it as well um in terms of people who may be struggling it does come back to the kind of cliches that you are not the first person and sadly will not be the last person to be feeling what you're feeling right now um I have been there and I know how scary and isolating it can feel. Um, And you really should know that by taking the first step to speak to somebody that you trust um, can make the world a difference. And yeah, it can be, it can be a difficult road and not everybody is going to understand you or have the compassion that you most definitely deserve. But there are organizations and there are individuals who really really do care um you know like I said earlier as well like it seems naff to sort of say oh everything will and and does get better because like anything in life there's it's going to fluctuate your mental health is going to fluctuate but you know how if you are feeling in a really dark and difficult place right now like it will not always it's impossible to keep that intensity up for a prolonged period of time It, it will ease um and there are things you can do to to make things more manageable for you and hopefully a lot better. So please speak to people. Um, please research um, different organisations out there that do want to help and know that no matter what, inverted commas, crazy thoughts, you mad, <laughs> to use the word, were, um, thoughts and feelings that you may be having, um, they're normal and yeah there's a lot of people that have been there before and will want to help you so yeah please reach out that's what I'd say (laughs) well I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the just checking in podcast Charlotte thank you so much for being my special guest on this episode's pod for checking in with me for your openness for your honesty and I wish you the best of luck with man millennials and the music for the rest of this year and beyond as always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. It's true.